everyone, and welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Mark Gerdish, who is the principal investigator for the ATLAS study. And in this trial, they examined the use of the atrial clip as a prophylactic management of the left atrial appendage in patients who were already undergoing open heart surgery, but who entered the operating room without a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, and then went on to develop postoperative or new onset atrial fibrillation, and the utilization of the atrial clip to hopefully prevent embolic phenomenon related with new onset post-op AFib. So we discussed these findings and in the context of the Laos 3 study, and we also have a really interesting conversation about the multifactorial components that lead to atrial fibrillation in many patients. So again, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mark Gerdish. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. It's the absolute pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Mark Gerdish today, just as a, a way of introduction. So Dr. Gerdish really is a world-renowned cardiothoracic surgeon, and it's not just for his treatment of atrial fibrillation, but he is a minimally invasive mitral valve repair expert. He actually did some extra training in Paris, and then also aortic valve repair, which not a lot of people are doing these days, but he has a very robust aortic valve repair program as well. He is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. He is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, and as well as a fellow of the Heart Rhythm Society. He is the Chief of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery and Co-Director of the Heart Valve Center and Atrial Fibrillation Program at Franciscan St. Francis Health in Indianapolis, Indiana, and is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery at the Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago. And he was most recently a guest editor for the CTSNet series, Surgical Atrial Fibrillation, What We Must Do and What We Can Do. So thank you, Dr. Kurdish, for joining us today. Great. Armin, thank you for the lovely introduction. And I really appreciate the invitation. The floor is yours. Tell me what you want to talk about. All right. Well, the reason I brought you on today was I wanted to get into this Atlas study. So I don't really want to speak for you. So I'm going to let you kind of let us know about it. Kind of what drove even having this idea of creating this study, the Atlas study, if you can just get into that for us. So I think that there's a number of different ways to look at this. One is, like you say, what, what drove the creation of the study, the initial feasibility study, was really our pretty clear understanding that the left atrial appendage is dangerous in people who have cardiovascular disease. So this, in kind of broad strokes, I think it's important for people to recognize that people who have cardiovascular disease tend to have elevated CHADVAS scores. So for folks who don't know what a CHADVAS score is, it's a combination of risk factors that increase the likelihood of having a stroke if you have atrial fibrillation. 
Interestingly enough, those same risk factors also create a porridge that increases the likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation. So in the same people that it's a high risk of stroke, if they have atrial fibrillation, those same factors seem to create the environment for increased incidence of atrial fibrillation. So congestive heart failure, hypertension, age, both 65 to 75 and 75 and above, uh, diabetes, a history of stroke. A history of stroke is a really powerful predictor of another stroke. And then vascular disease, and in, in fact, being a woman, those things are in, increase your risk around those things. So that combined with recognizing that, you know, historically, and we always have to go back to Jim Cox for everything, right? So Dr. Cox, in the process of creating the only really superb operation for treating atrial fibrillation, also gave us really strong evidence that the left atrial appendage, its elimination would decrease or even eliminate stroke in folks who have atrial fibrillation. So we knew that that started 35 years ago with that operation. Right. We know that people, when they have strokes related to atrial fibrillation, if they have a recognized source, it's in the left atrial appendage. So for, again, for people who don't understand some of this, when people are in atrial fibrillation, when the upper chambers of the heart are not in a coordinated rhythm, People tend to form clot in the atria, but mostly in the left atrial appendage, which is, I always say it's like a windsock ha- hanging off the top of the left atrium and has stagnant flow in it. As you can imagine, it's a setup for creating thrombus. So we've always kind of known that it was a dangerous organ. There were the, some of us, including our practice, that felt that people who were high risk, for whom we already had the chest open, who had an elevated Chad score, even if they didn't have a history of atrial fibrillation, if we thought they had a reasonable likelihood of longevity, but we're still going to be at risk of atrial fibrillation, we started to close their appendages. So there was already a little bit of kind of an avant-garde, uh, leading edge group of surgeons who were doing this, sure. talking to these patients ahead of time, explaining to them this option and then closing the appendage. Meanwhile, there's a series of studies being done, the Laos trials. So these were the kind of groundbreaking studies looking at patients going to surgery who have atrial fibrillation, and the only treatment they get while they're in the operating room for the atrial, related to the atrial fibrillation is a closer appendage. And what we learned, we learned a couple of things. We learned, number one, that there were only a couple of ways that you could close the appendage well. Number two, we learned that if you were able to close the appendage well, you could decrease the incidence of stroke for those patients. And those patients were all still in standard of care meaning that they were still getting anticoagulated, they were still being treated for their atrial fibrillation, but their appendage was closed. And then we have this more definitive recent study, LAUS-3. Again, standard of care, patients go to the operating room, they have a history of atrial fibrillation, they do or don't get their appendage closed, they're randomized, in other words, 50% do, 50% don't. And they have three options for closing the appendage, all fairly good ways. And the outcome is what you might expect. They're in those same patients being treated with standard of care therapy. If their appendage was closed, they dramatically diminished the incidence of stroke for those patients. So we know that in these group, the group of patients in whom still, you know, many of them are anticoagulated, many of them are treated in the standard fashion for their AFib. If we close their appendage, we decrease their risk of stroke. There's another component of this, and that's atriopathy. And Dr. Whitlock, who led those studies, has brilliantly laid out for us this convergence of atrial fibrillation, appendage management, 
and atriopathy. Now, the, it becomes super important, atriopathy, which is just cardiomyopathy of the atria. This becomes super important when we start to talk about closing appendages in people who don't have a history, a clear history of atrial fibrillation, because the presence of that atriopathy increases the likelihood they'll develop atrial fibrillation. It also ties into their risk of stroke. So we know that there, these diseases of the atria are related. The presence of myopathy, of changes in the muscle of the atria tie into atrial fibrillation. We know that people who have changes in the substrate, alterations in the myocardial substrate, in other words, their muscle has fibrosis, it's inhomogeneous, it's scarred. We know they have a higher incidence of AFib. We know they have a higher incidence of all atrial arrhythmias. And then we know they have a higher incidence of stroke. So in those patients, it's almost counterintuitive because you think, well, if they have atriopathy, if we treat their appendage, we're only fixing part of the problem. But it's the most important part when it comes to if they're going to have a stroke. So this is where we are now in this next phase. So early on, we did a feasibility study called ATLAS, where you randomized two to one. Every, for every two patients that got a clip, one didn't. The groups looked the same. Management was standard of care. And we saw two things. We saw one, the most important thing was that we reduced the incidence of thromboembolic events in these patients. These are patients who did not have a history of atrial fibrillation. For the folks that we closed the appendage, we numerically decreased the thromboembolic events. So I have to stress that because it was a feasibility study, is a pilot study, doesn't have enough people enrolled to achieve statistical significance. We just wanted to understand the trend so we can make plans for the next study. So in that study, we see a numerically lower incidence of thromboembolism, which means stroke or throwing clots in places in the body. We also saw that when people are anticoagulated, they bleed. So that's the other side of the sword, right? When people have atrial fibrillation or risk of atrial fibrillation or whatever, atriopathy, if we anticoagulate them, we can decrease the stroke risk, we think, most of the time, but we increase their bleeding risk. And I'm going to go back to this because it's important in heart surgery patients. Right. Okay? But so we saw that those two things that we kind of, we knew the bleeding thing, but we weren't sure about closing the appendage in people who don't have a history of atrial fibrillation, but are at risk for it. And of course, people who go to heart surgery, they have multiple risk factors for atrial fibrillation. And we know that people after heart surgery, somewhere between 20 and 40% of them have some atrial fibrillation after surgery. Right. It's identified right after surgery. But then we follow them, if we follow them long enough, they have atrial fibrillation again later. A lot of them do. Right. And they're not protected. So the theme of this is, can we decrease the long-term risk for people who are at risk of developing atrial fibrillation and or who have atriopathy, abnormal atria, can we decrease their long-term risk of stroke by closing their appendage? So the next phase of ATLAS will be a randomized control study one-to-one. And this will be a big study with thousands of patients and it'll be multinational study. And that will help us, and Dr. Whitlock has agreed to participate in that and lead us really. And that will help us discern whether we can or should treat appendages, that, again, for folks who don't know a lot about this, the appendage being like a windstock that hangs off the upper chamber of the heart, stagnant flow when you're in atrial fibrillation, probably slow flow with any atriopathy. If we close those appendages in folks that we think are at risk, can we decrease their long-term risk of stroke? So we're going to find that out in a really grand study. But you see how all the 
all the foundation was laid out for us already, right? We did our little pilot study, but meanwhile, Laos 3 showed conclusively statistically significant reductions in stroke risk by closing appendage in people with AFib. And we had historically in folks even who were treated for effectively treated for atrial fibrillation, we saw that their incidence of stroke was almost nothing, nearly zero, because their appendages were closed. I mean, that's got to be a big part of it. You brought up so many points. I want to touch on a couple. I'm really happy you brought up Laos. I do want to also touch on the fact that what's scary, I think, for a lot of patients too, is that for many patients, the first time they're diagnosed with AFib is when they're in the emergency department with a stroke. So this whole idea of treating the appendage to possibly prevent stroke in folks who don't have AFib yet, if you will, is just such a, a huge clinical aspect of treating the left atrial appendage is, is preventing that first kind of devastating event of the presentation of the AFib, which is the stroke. So getting back to Laos, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the stroke risks in Laos 3 versus the stroke risks that you saw in Atlas or incident sessions, I should say, not risk. Your stroke risks were exceedingly low. In your patients who developed postoperative AFib, your stroke risk was only 1.7, 1.6%. And you compare that to the Laos 3 study, where it was 4.8% in patients who had their left atrial appendage managed. I mean, that's a huge difference in and of itself. Why do you think your, your baseline was so much lower? I mean, obviously, you're a fantastic surgeon, but oh, are, other people. are there other things that you think led to your kind of even just your baseline stroke risk was so low? Yeah, I wish I could definitively answer that. I think that we have to give credit to the larger study, right? The larger study had enough people in it to make sense of it globally, both with the baseline incidence and significantly different values that occurred for the two groups. So I think one of the things that'll be answered by our follow-on study will be whether that was spurious. The other thing though, Atlas will be a CLIP study. And one of the things we learned from the previous Laos studies was that really other ways of closing the appendage are not great. So, and the Laos studies included using a stapler, which if we look at all the previous studies that have looked at outcomes for those, it's not great. The appendage doesn't get well closed, close to as close to the base of the appendage as we want it to be. And so we saw failures in multiple studies where patients were examined after they had had their appendage closed with a stapler. So could impact it, right? If you don't, if you, a poorly closed appendage, we all know this, poorly closed appendage is worse than leaving an appendage open. So if that creates any noise in the study, then it could potentially sway the outcomes. That's my explanation is conjecture because I can't prove it, right? But the Atlas study will just be eclipse studies. So we know from, as you know, I participated in and led three studies looking at how well the eclipse closes an appendage. And it's clearly been the most effective means of closing the appendage well at the base. Right. And just for people to know, I mean, you're not talking half the time. You're talking right. 99% of the time, yeah. at least the left atrial appendage is closed. Right. 97.8 to 99% <laughs> of the time, right. the appendage right. is well closed right. with this externally applied clip. And with staplers, there tend to be a little bit incidence of stumps. And even with cutting and sewing, if it's, if it's not a surgeon who does it all the time, because it's a little bit tricky, you can leave a stump. And leaving a stump, you know, threatens the effectiveness. I also want to go back to, I mentioned earlier, the bleeding, right? So I think that 
another thing that we've always looked at is has blood scores. As a matter of fact, in our practice for several years, every single patient that has heart surgery in our practice gets a CHADVAS score and a has blood score. You don't leave the operating room without those on your chart. So that we kind of look at them postoperatively with respect to those numbers, make judgments about anticoagulation based on those. So has blood score is a means of scoring the patient's risk for bleeding. And, and it actually tracks with a CHADVAS score, which is interesting. So people who have higher risk for stroke also have higher risk of bleeding, which all kind of ties in with frailty and multi-dimensional cardiovascular disease. So, and there are two recent studies, and I'm sure you've seen them. One is an SDS study. The other, I think, was done in Sweden, looking at large numbers of patients managed for post-operative atrial fibrillation. And when they looked at the folks that went home with anticoagulation versus the ones who did not, there was no difference in the stroke event rate. Thromboembolic event rate was the same. The only thing that was different was the bleeding. It was dramatic. It was on the order of four times more bleeding in the people who received anticoagulation. So I don't say that to scare people about being having blood thinners after surgery, but my point is that we have to be attentive to the individual patient's risk of bleeding. And we have to think about it even ahead of time. If we potentially get into a position later where we have to anticoagulate them, and we had the opportunity to do something ahead of time that would have prevented that need or diminished it, then we missed an opportunity. So it, I think that we just have to be serious about it. All of this is very serious. It's very detail-oriented, and it's extremely individualized. There's no room for being lazy on this, not on the patient's side of it or on the physician's side of it. You have to look at everything. That's the only way we can drive down the bleeding risk, right, as we eliminate the stroke risk. And we don't want to needlessly close appendages. We don't want to just, you can't close everybody's appendage. It doesn't make sense. But you want to be able to risk stratify people, understand the risk for atrial fibrillation. Certainly, if they have any history of atrial fibrillation, the absolute minimum thing we need to do is close the appendage well. So anyway, that's the, that's kind of where we are. Sure. And you know, one thing I found interesting too is in the ATLAS data, anyways, even the patients who didn't develop postoperative AFib had a reduction in their stroke risk. And that was statistically significant. It was 1.6% versus 4.8%. And the number needed to treat was only 31. Yeah. I mean, that's phenomenal. I mean, you treat for every 30 patients that you, you manage their left atrial appendage, regardless if they develop postoperative AFib, you're going to statistically significantly reduce their risk of stroke. Yeah, I thought that was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Now, and a bit and, counterintuitive because you would think it was the post-op AFib patients who would actually benefit more from it. And like you said, it's on the scale, it's a smaller study, but it's still, you know, 500 so patients. But it, you would think that the impact would have been more on the post-op AFib. But we already, we already know from layouts that treating the appendage in folks with AFib obviously makes a difference. Yeah, so my hypothesis is that people who don't have post-op AFib then have it later, right? They're completely unprotected because no one's putting them on anticoagulation because they didn't have post-operative AFib. Right. So, and nobody's even paying attention to an AFib risk for them. They didn't have their AFib in the four days they're in the hospital. They go home, they have their AFib, they don't know it. So you had mentioned before, like people will, their first symptom of atrial fibrillation can be a stroke. And as we know that folks who are first, when they have a first diagnosis of a stroke, 20% of them, it turns out they have atrial fibrillation, right? Right. So, and then there's another 25 or 30% of people who have strokes that are called cryptogenic, that we don't know why they had a stroke. But if we follow those patients long enough, a substantial portion of them 
have atrial fibrillation that we just didn't know about. Right. So I think that what we're learning more and more is that I feel a little silly saying this because Jim Cox has been telling us for 35 years that atrial fibrillation is a chronic, progressive and deadly disease. But we're it's being pushed to the forefront because we're seeing so much of it. And we're recognizing through big data that when people have atrial fibrillation, everything changes for them, their entire lives, right? Their incidence of heart failure, their aerobic capacity diminishes, their likelihood of, of having stroke or bleeding events changes, and their likelihood of staying alive in five years is dramatically diminished. So in that combining, that dovetailing with recent evidence that, for example, people who have heart failure have atrial fibrillation, we treat their atrial fibrillation they get better. So it's not a silver bullet, but it is a a substantial component to cardiovascular disease all the way down the line. So heart failure, hypertension, everything about cardiovascular disease, MI, LV dysfunction, preserved heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. All these people have a segment that are suffering from atrial fibrillation. All of those atrial fibrillations need to be addressed aggressively. The other side of that is that we have to recognize that even for us as surgeons, when we see atrial fibrillation in people who have heart disease that we're treating, so we think of it as they have atrial fibrillation due to left-sided heart disease. In other words, they have valve disease, they have coronary disease even, they have pathology that is mechanical or flow-related, and that's why they have their atrial fibrillation, but that's only partly true. They also have their atrial fibrillation because of their sleep apnea, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, thyroid disease, and we actually have to attend to all of those things to be really successful in changing the life curve for a patient. Because our goal really has to be when we confront the pathology, which is whatever we're treating directly, mechanically, plus the arrhythmia, our goal has to be how do we now mold the situation to provide the patient what they're after? I always ask them what they're after, right? And it's invariably, I want to be healthy and well. I want to see my children and grandchildren, and I want to be able to do the things I used to be able to do. If you want to provide that, you have to go after all of it because it's not just getting rid of the strokes. It's returning the patient's aerobic capacity. It's restoring you know, their health. It's my, and they participate too by treating all those other things we talked about. Right, exactly. So in one world, we treat the AFib as a sign that leads to certain symptoms, whether it's stroke or heart failure. But in the other world, AFib is the symptom of all these other things that have led to it. And so right. That, right, exactly. Right. So I'm going to ask you to put your kind of your primary care cap on for a second. So you just mentioned all these things, right? Sleep apnea, hypertension, all these things. So do you think there is a point at which we need to screen for AFib rather than just diagnose patients when they present to the hospital with, God forbid, a stroke or something like that? Should we be more aggressive at screening for AFib so we can prophylactically treat these patients? And let's take it another level. Should we ever be prophylactically treating the left atrial appendage if, as we screen for patients, we identify that they have AFib or they're at high risk? Wow. So <laughs> should we screen for AFib? And the answer yeah. to that is with certainty. I'm sure of this, that it's yes. So folks who are at risk for atrial fibrillation should be screened for atrial fibrillation. And I say that for two reasons. One is that the likelihood of somebody who has risk factors for atrial fibrillation, all of which I just listed, the likelihood of them having atrial fibrillation is considerable, right? So it's elevated and they should be screened. The likelihood of them having an ill event from their atrial fibrillation is also increased. So if somebody's otherwise pretty healthy, right? 
that doesn't have any of those risk factors. The likelihood of having a stroke or some ill event from the AFib is small. But if they have all those risk factors, then they're more likely to have AFib and to suffer a major event from it. The other thing is that people have to recognize it's never a little AFib. You asked me about the primary care thing. Oh, you just have a little AFib. It's not, it happens. That's not the right answer. You have atrial fibrillation. It is a signal of a chronic progressive disorder that is elicited by, I listed all of those things. We need to look for all those things in you. And we have to address them. We, you know, we have this kind of global term now called cardiometabolic syndrome, which I really think people should become familiar with because it's ubiquitous in our society. But it's signaled by elevated inflammatory markers, increased central adiposity, hypertension, and insulin resistance. So as soon as somebody's kind of pre-diabetic or a little bit diabetic and they've got extra pounds and their CRP is elevated, to me, that's a five alarm fire. I'm going to look for AFib and I'm going to try to find the root causes and assess and help them reverse that pathophysiology because it inevitably leads them down the same path. And I always say, everybody's on the path to heart failure. This is kind of how it goes, right? And along that path is a high incidence of atrial fibrillation, the risk of stroke, and its contribution to their, their changes in physiology. In my talks, I often have a slide that shows the original studies done in Ireland, I think it was in 1965, when they figured out how to cardiovert people. And so they would they had these otherwise pretty fit people who had atrial fibrillation. They were in pretty good shape. And they, they measured their cardiac output while they were in atrial fibrillation, cardioverted them. And when they were in sinus rhythm, they would measure their cardiac output again and then see what happens to it when they go back in atrial fibrillation. And in general, their cardiac output rose by 30% when they went in the sinus rhythm. So just to give an idea of the aerobic the disabling of the aerobic capacity that goes along with atrial fibrillation. It's not subtle. It's not a minor thing. So you, you said the GP hat, right? So the GP hat is, yeah, people who are at risk should be screened. People who are at risk, their, their risk factors need to be addressed so they don't develop atrial fibrillation. And then when people have atrial fibrillation, it should lead to evaluation of all these other disorders to ascertain. We send everybody who has atrial fibrillation, even if we have some organic problem in their heart that we think is a primary mechanism, Everybody who has atrial fibrillation, if they tell me they've snored at any time in their life, or if they don't know, they get a sleep study. So we seek and treat sleep apnea, which is a common disorder inducing atrial fibrillation, and which is in and of itself a dangerous disorder. And we do it all the time. So a surgical office is constantly referring patients for sleep studies. I think that other doctors should probably get on board with that too. Right. The other thing, screening question I wanted to ask you is, you know, we have class one indications now to treat atrial fibrillation in the setting of mitral valve disease, aortic cabbage. Anytime basically we take a patient to the operating room and they have AFib, we should be treating their AFib. When you evaluate your patients in clinic and they don't present with typical signs or an EKG that shows AFib, do you screen your typical cardiac surgical patient for AFib? Do you put a Zio patch on them? Do you do a ultra monitor? What is your typical workup for AFib? in the preoperative setting. So it's somebody who might don't have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, but I think is at risk. So I, I have to tell an anecdotal story that led me down this path. I had a patient many years ago that had mitral stenosis, had been in the hospital for six days, in heart failure, got tuned up, was going home, and had not had a beat of an irregular beat the whole time he was there. He had a big left atrium, of course, like mitral stenosis patients do. And his cardiologist actually said to me, Mark, you know, I, I think 
we might want to look for AFib in that guy. I said, fine, I'll put a Zio patch on him. A Zio patch is a portable patch that doesn't have any wires or anything. It has a chip in it that measure, monitors the patient's rhythm for up to two weeks. And when they're finished with it, we just, they peel it off, put it in the mail and send it off. And then we get a report back that tells us about their AFib burden. So long story short, he was in AFib 60% of the time, 60% of the time. So we, of course, did a maze for him and got rid of his atrial fibrillation. So that set me on the path that really people who I considered at high risk, so people with big atria, anybody who's had any palpitations at all, I will put a Zio patch on them. You know, it's an inexpensive way for me to ascertain whether they have a potentially lethal disorder. So, and if it shows up, uh, then we treat them. Now, the the incidences of uh, the interesting thing is, of course, how often do you actually find it? And it's probably only about five or 10% of the time. But that's still a pretty good yield. If it's one out of 20, those are patients that would otherwise not have been diagnosed and gone on to have atrial fibrillation, right? It always worsens. Right. So yeah, so that's my story. Yeah, and there's absolutely nothing more frustrating than taking a mitral patient to the OR where all over the chart it says they don't have AFib and then they have AFib post-op. And it's not just post-op AFib, but it persists after that 30-day period. There's nothing more frustrating than that because you're in the atrium. You could treat them right there. That's so true. And I can remember that patient. Oh, I bet. You know what I mean? You can (laughs) too, right? Exactly. I sure can. Yeah. It's a terrible thing. Right. Right. You want to be able to, because you can treat it. You're right there. Sure. So that's our 30 minutes. I could talk to you about so much more. I'm sure we can have another episode about other topics. I really appreciate you reviewing everything you just did, obviously, not just Atlas, but everything else you talked about. And I think we're all looking forward to the larger study, looking at prophylactic left atrial appendage management with Dr. Whitlock and his group there as well. So thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up this episode? No, thank you so much for having me. My only one plea and appeal is that, and you say the same thing, I know, because you're a fabulous surgeon globally and as an AFib surgeon, please, when people are in the operating room and you have the opportunity to fix their atrial fibrillation, do it. And often we teach the courses, you've taught those courses with me. And sometimes people will say to me, well, do you have to do all of those lesions? And the answer is yes. It depends how effective you want to be. But yeah, the answer is yes, right? So we've had, again, Jim Cox laid it out for us. We just have to follow the rules. That's my, that's the only thing I have to add. And thank you so much though, Armin. Thank you for doing this. And I look forward to hearing everybody else. Thank you, Dr. Gerda. Thanks. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com. And check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.